Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This interview is part of a series we're doing with the African Studies Association and was recorded at their 59th annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the inaugural African Studies Association podcast brought to you by ASA and by the Africa Past and Present series of Michigan State University. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Olaji. Our distinguished guests are Professor Michele Gitemugo, formerly of Syracuse University, who co-wrote The Trial of Dead Ankimati with Ngugi Wationgo, and Professor Simon Gigandi of Princeton University, who has written extensively on Ngugi's work. Michele Mugo is a distinguished poet, playwright, activist, and the author or editor of 15 books, including the widely read Visions of Africa, the fiction of Chinua Chebe, Margaret Lawrence, Elspeth Huxley, and Ngugi Wationgo, published by the Kenya Literature Bureau in 1978. She has a BA from Makerere University, her PhD from the University of New Brunswick, she taught at the University of Nairobi in the 1970s, where she became Dean of the Faculty of Arts, making her the first female dean in Kenya. For her activism, Mugo was forced into exile in 1982 and then taught at the University of Zimbabwe for several years. She moved to the United States in the 1990s and taught for two decades at Syracuse University in the Department of African American Studies. Simon Gikandi is Robert Shermer Professor of English at Princeton University and past editor of PMLA, the official journal of the Modern Languages Association. He earned a BA in Literature from the University of Nairobi, a master's degree from the University of Edinburgh, and a PhD from Northwestern University. He's the author of many books and articles, including Writing in Limbo, Maps of Englishness, and Ngugi Wationgo. He is also co-author of the Columbia Guide to East African Literature in English since 1945, co-editor of the Cambridge History of African and Caribbean Literature, and editor of the Rutledge Encyclopedia of African Literature. His book, Slavery and the Culture of Taste, published by Princeton University Press in 2011, was the winner of the African Studies Association's Herskowitz Book Award. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Well, your, your joint lecture tonight uh, at ASA is Kamati Mau Mau and the Politics of Naming, a very intriguing title. And this uh, 1976 play, The Trial of Dadan Kamati, with its companion play, uh, Ingakuyu, the following year, I Will Marry When I Want, was a key moment, I think, in, in, in Kenyan literature and politics. We get a keen sense of people's history in the play. Uh, it was hugely important, I'm sure, at the time. It was a revolutionary play. It was performed by villagers and it was developed cooperatively. And this play helped build resistance and popular theatre. Ngugi was arrested at the end of 77 and spent most of the next year in prison. And Mugo went into exile in Zimbabwe, where she launched a publishing series. So it's a perfect play in many ways to bounce around between literature, orality, orature and history. It's also a very political play. So to begin, 
uh, just briefly for the listeners, some of whom may not be familiar with the play, could you please, Dr Mugo, uh, just paint the plot and, and its uh, significance for us? First of all, thank you very much for having me. And just a little correction about where I am right now. I'm not with Syracuse University. I retired last year happily. I used to be in the Department of African American Studies as Professor of uh, Teaching Excellence. So thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about this very important work. As you said, um, there is a linkage um, in terms of theater and what we were trying to do in theater in Kenya between the trial of Dead and Kimathi and the work that um, Ngogi and Ngogiwa Miri and Kimani Gechao were doing at Limuru and Kamirezo. So the idea was really just this uh, deep need on our part to um, reach uh, to people uh, through theater, ordinary people through theater because um, it was clear that theater was one of the most effective ways of communicating with them and also uh, creating room for their participation. A lot of sessions in all the productions that we did would end up with um, a session of criticism and comments from the people. And so there would be creators along with us expanding on the original script, as it were. So at uh, this play, The Trial of Dead and Kimathi, we wrote actually before the work um, on Gahika Ndenda, which followed after. And um, it was long in um, the making because the seeds of it were really uh, go back to 1971 when I was in Kenya doing research from the University of New Brunswick where I was doing my doctorate. By the way, let me use this platform to correct the fact that I never attended the University of Toronto where everybody says I graduated from in 1976. <laughs> I actually graduated from the University of New Brunswick, Fredericton, Canada in 1973. So in 1971, I was in Kenya doing research because my research was on Ngogiwa Thiongo, Elspeth Hacks, um, Chinua Achebe, Margaret Lawrence. It um, later came out in form of the book that is called Visions of Africa. And I was trying to compare visions of insiders and outsiders and wrestling with the notion of objectivity and who really owns the text as it, as it were. So um, as I was interviewing Gogi, we came to um, you know, uh, discuss uh, uh, Field Marshal Dead and Kimathi, discovered with both were full of admiration for him and felt there was a debt in um, you know, clarifying as well as redeeming an image of um, Field Marshal Dead and Kimathi that had been damaged by um, colonials and colonial uh, sources who depicted him as a murderer, as a leader um, to darkness and, and death, as a, quote, terrorist and so on. So we talked about, you know, doing a play on him. And so I went back to New Brunswick, Ngogi was at the University of Nairobi. And when I joined the University of Nairobi in 1973, after getting my PhD, we um, started the conversation again. And around um, 1974, a play by a Kenyan 
called Kenneth Watenu was showing at the National Theatre. And when we saw the play, we were really, really frustrated as well as disturbed because the play seemed to be confirming the stereotypes about Kimathi as a dictator, as this maniac who was screaming all over the place and leading disorganization and chaos all over the place, who was disliked and hated and feared. So we went in to do, um, to do some research in order to see whether there was a counter-narrative. And we describe in the um, introduction or preface how we went on research and discovered this other, you know, um, Kimathi that was, you know, the hero of the people, especially the workers and the masses and so on. So that's how this play was born. And it was chosen as Kenya's entry, national entry to the Black World Festival in Lagos, along with um, Imboga's play, Betrayal in the City. So that's the history behind this. But you were right. As we were preparing for Lagos and, 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 and doing the performance, we found that um, ordinary people, especially former freedom fighters, were traveling all the way from up country, from all over, and insisting on coming and seeing themselves being played on the stage. So it really brought, you know, a kind of, you know, people's theater right there in Nairobi at the National Theater, which used to have a different character. So that's how the play uh, came to be. As I was rereading the play this morning, I was struck by so many things, including, you know, the the focus on violence and the discourse on terrorism and this justice and mockery of justice that happens in the play itself. And I was struck by how relevant these topics are in today's world. We live in a world where U.S. imperial wars, uh, torture, police killings in America are sadly part of what we have to grapple with. Mm -hmm. So uh, can you reflect on perhaps the play's relevance today and whether it's being performed Mm -hmm. by communities, by schools, by companies um, in Kenya or outside Kenya, even in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Placing the play historically where it belongs during the liberation struggle um, for Kenya. Um, Of course, uh, a theoretician such as Franz Fanon produced like the blueprint around how to see uh, the liberation of occupied lands and so forth. And um, as you know, in uh, one of the chapters, he uh, does go out of the way to um, put forward a case for justification of counter-violence uh, when it really means that, um, you know, um, the, the colonized would either be surrendering themselves or committing, as it were, suicide by uh, not fighting back. Today, the debate on how to liberate and whether, you know, um, uh, violence is still um, uh, relevant. And I use violence in a very creative way, you know, fighting back, as it were, rather than negatively and so on. So it's a debate that is ongoing even up to today because the mappings have changed and and, and ways of dealing with um, conflict and and so on, um, you know, um, has come up. But in this work, what we try to do is to show to demystify the notion that, um, you know, the KLFA, the Kenya Liberation Army, uh, was the violent, you know, partner 
in all of this. And he tried to show um, here that, in fact, violence came from imperialism and occupation, especially of, you know, what um, the settlers came to name as the White Highlands, uh, dispossessing people, uh, displacing them and, and throwing them, you know, um, out of their own ancestral lands and so forth, you know. So we address violence in, in, in that sense that um, what was happening um, under the liberation struggle was a response to violence that was very, very consistent and that had existed way before. We also tried to show forms of violence that we don't speak about, like economic injustice, like um, racism, um, like the forms of oppression that we encounter and, 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 and highlight in the text, going way back two days of um, the transatlantic um, uh, slave trade, showing this has always been the nature of um, imperialism and empire building and so forth. So this is still relevant today because empire building and expansionism is something that is still afoot, still going on. The relevance of this play, especially when we look at the critique that we level at the economic uh, systems that are unjust, that um, you know, exploitative and so forth, it makes it uh, extremely relevant uh, to what is going on today. Um, and uh, on the African continent, uh, this play becomes um, even more relevant than um, we can imagine because um, right now uh, in the era of neocolonialism, there is a repeat of exactly, you know, the same, you know, crimes and injustices that existed under co colonialism. In some cases, it's been even perfected uh, to become even worse. Today, as we are talking, the majority of Kenyans are still disadvantaged and living in poverty and so forth. So the issues we are raising about, you know, um, class and the, um, you know, conflict and um, contestations between the various classes still remain. Today um, in Kenya and other parts of the world, those who supported um, imperialism and colonialism are the new landlords and, and, and the new owners of, of property and wealth and so forth. So, you know, the, the, the the, the cycle uh, continues into this new age. And so it's relevant. A lot of young people say that it's surprising how clearly it speaks to them and, um, you know, some of the situations that uh, they are facing. Now, we saw an amazing performance of this play at Goge's University, UCI, University of California at Irvine, uh, was it a year or two years ago that uh, Ketu Katrak and uh, the School of Drama there had produced? They were so creative um, in creating a scene where, as you actually entered to go into the play, it was like you were reliving scenes in emergency Kenya, where, in fact, you were being terrorized and, and, and so on as you were trying to enter you know, the theater. The players became so creative that they would even seize our telephone, our cell phones, and, and, and so on, and push us around. It really was quite scary, you know. So it, it was a lovely experience. But um, the other big connection here is the connection we make to international, um, you know, capitalism and imperialism at the world global level. And those connections are still very relevant today, I would say. Dr. Kakandi, you've written a lot on all of this. You've written a wonderful book, um, on Ngugi, 
in which you have a chapter uh, that deals with the plays. So can you first perhaps let us know how you went about writing on Ngugi and the challenges and the delights and, and where you feel perhaps Ngugi and Mugo studies are at the moment and then join us as, as co-interviewer uh, and pose questions. Well, I should begin by talking about my own relationship with both Ngoge and Michere and also the play itself because I met both Ngoge, Michere and the play at about the same time. I had just arrived at the University of Nairobi as a young student. The very week the production of the play started and one of my friends, the late Wahome Mutahi, invited me to join him and become one of the extras playing <laughs> Mau Mau on a play. Um, so one of the challenges obviously now has been my own closeness to, to the event, uh, but also my own closeness both to the histories the play was talking about as someone who had been born uh, at the end of the state of emergency and obviously uh, growing up in the very epicenter of, of, of the, the revolt. So the challenge at the time was, uh, when I started writing about Ngoge, the first thing I needed to do is to kind of distance myself from, from him, from the play, and also from those moments which I shared, mem moments of memory. Um, so I decided I was not going to speak to Ngoge for five years. <laughs> so for five years, I didn't actually talk to him. I avoided him, but I saw him at a conference, and so I just didn't talk to him. And, and, and then until I was satisfied that I could look at this uh, from a slightly critical uh, distance. Now, the other challenge was um, the fact that I was mostly writing about Ngoge the novelist. So one of the questions I had to ask myself is where his drama fitted in, in relation to his novelistic work. And I remember him telling me years ago, that he had always been surprised that he had always gotten in trouble with governments because of his plays, not his novels. And he had talked about his experience with his first play when he was uh, at Makerele, um, the reaction of the Ugandan government. And he was talking about, of course, the consequences of the Kemathi play, and later, of course, Gahi Kandeda, um, which was, of course, going to lead to his imprisonment and exile and so on. So I needed to acquire some distance but uh, at the same time, I needed to think about how to write, talk about Ngoge, the playwright. And one of the things also which uh, was difficult when it came to writing about the play, of course, this is a play written by two people, whereas, of course, the other works are, are single-authored. So I, I struggled with um, how to fit Ngoge's drama into this. And eventually, uh, what I decided to do is to focus on something Ngoge was talking about at the time, and that's the notion of performance. Um, because performance uh, does open up different ways of thinking about about literature itself. Um, and, and so in that chapter, I'm focusing on a performance and especially one important thing uh, which Michelle talked about, and that is how the drama itself became much more than the play. Uh, because when I, I saw it on stage in Nairobi, there were two astounding things about it. One was all these people driving into Nairobi with um, buses to come to the, a theater, which actually was almost out of limits to ordinary mm -hmm. people. And they were coming, and uh, the person acting Kemathi, well, I think was Steve Mwenesi, and he looked so much like Kemathi that actually I could see people in the audience 
just ask, isn't that Kimathi on stage? <laughs> the other thing that happened, uh, which broke that line between the stage and the audience and the public, was at the end of the play, there's that very powerful song about the, the liver that keeps on flowing. And the actors walked off stage into the street and there was almost panic because across the National Theatre in Kenya is the Norfolk Hotel, which at the time was the watering hole of, <laughs> of the, not only the local elite, but the remnants of the settler mm -hmm. establishment in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were walking in and we were actually carrying real guns, <laughs> carrying rifles borrowed from the central police station. And we were walking there and there was total panic, <laughs> right? Um, it's a sieve what was being performed had a connection to a reality, which was so profound. Um, so what I came to realize, and to talk about the play, is to talk about its own ability to not only provoke questions, but to touch the raw nerve of, of Kenyan history. Uh, there's something, Ngogi had written about these issues in his novels, but it's when this was performed on stage, that suddenly it acquires a new reality, which that's when I began to realize that uh, th there was a serious crisis of memory and also a certain struggle to figure out exactly the meaning of Kenyan history. And I also realized there was a separation between the intellectuals writing about this history and the way the history was seen by ordinary people who had lived through these events. So, so, so the challenge was to try and return the play now to that moment of its production, which had disappeared. But let me come in very briefly to say that um, uh, uh, Professor Gekandi is always uh, very modest about his achievements and so on. And you were asking him about, you know, how do you write about, you know, someone you know so well, have worked with and so on. And that distance that he is talking about really has been a part of his intellectual independence ever since the days when he was a student. At the University of Nairobi in the 70s, we really had to be on our our toes, uh, meaning professors, because students would literally accost you in the corridors as you came out of a lecture in order to interrogate you further and to disagree with you and, and to, to force you as a mualimu to agree to disagree. And, and they would force you to go and read up and come with new interpretation and ideas and so on. He was a part of that group from whom we developed intellectually a great, great deal, and we are very proud of him. So I just wanted to say that because Thank I know you. he won't <laughs> say it for much. himself. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so um, I guess one, one question I'd, I'd like to ask Mualimu is one of the things that struck me about the play was it ended up being a kind of celebration. Uh, it's, it's a play which is talking about violence, talking about terrible things, but on stage it ended up being not a tragic work, but a celebration. And I was wondering why you and Goge brought that element of celebration in, mm -hmm. in what people had thought was a work of mourning about Kimathi mm -hmm. and, his, and, of course, his death and his absence. Mm -hmm. That's really profound, profound because you are right. Um, Ngugi and I um, always shared uh, the vision that very often when we look at history, we get overwhelmed by the side of the story that shows oppression and beatings and, you know, um, those kinds of issues and so forth. And when you focus on that, then you forget to look at the dialectical process 
in which people, as they are asserting and um, themselves and, and refusing to go under, are always a cause for celebration. And really, we were uh, clear that we hadn't celebrated our history enough. There had been celebrations of Kenya's independence and Uhuru, you know, so-called flag independence, but a real celebration of the uh, liberators and, and, and that history of, of struggle and assert assertion and resistance at a time when the British Empire uh, used to claim that it's an empire on, on which the sun never sets. Uh, and there was uh, Kemathi and freedom fighters making sunset come, and indeed it did come. So the celebration was really to, you know, um, highlight mm. this new day and the reason to remember with happiness, um, you know, what had gone into liberating Kenya. So, so the other thing I, I wondered about was, uh, in the preface to the play, you, you talk about actually doing some, some research, you traveling and talking to people who knew Kemathi. Um, and I was struck by one moment when you stopped by the roadside and uh, you are challenged by a woman who says, if you people have killed Kemathi, mm -hmm. you know, show us where he's buried. Mm -hmm. So I wondered why you thought it was important to go and do that research, mm -hmm. talk to people, um, mm -hmm. and, and what came out of that experience? Yeah. In fact, that circles uh, back into uh, the question that you asked before, because the other thing that we are celebrating in this text are the, um, you know, uh, the, the not just the resilience and um, the intelligence and creativity of ordinary people as they struggle mm -hmm. against oppression, but also the cultures of resistance and especially, um, you know, celebration of oriture, the people's art forms and so on that were very much a part of, you know, uh, the liberation process, um, so on and so forth. So on that um, research trip, we wanted to, um, you know, um, collect the narratives of ordinary people, especially around Karunaini, where Kemathi was born, who had either known Kemathi or uh, seen him or worked with him or, um, you know, whatever. And this particular lady, woman, actually, um, was a former student of Kemathi when he used to um, be gifted in, in, in very much in drama and had formed a theater, um, you know, uh, during colonialism for the people to come together as a way of asserting their art forms and so on. So th this woman, um, qu this woman's question was so deep that it really left us quiet for a while and thinking about it because what she was insisting is that Kimathi, as far as ordinary people are concerned, still lives and lives on, and they don't recognize the physical death of Kimathi. And of course, this ties up very well with the Oricha worldview, in which even the dead are still with us today, and their work continues and so forth. So yes, it was a part of that, you know, collecting narratives from ordinary people in order to find counter narratives to the mega narrative that existed um, through colonial researchers and writers. I could also ask about the play itself in terms of um, some of the innovations uh, you made. One obvious one is you decided not to to write it in scenes like the tragic five scenes mm -hmm. one finds in Shakespeare um, and to have uh, an open space because Kemathi 
is not only in a cell, he's in the courtroom, he's in the mm -hmm. streets and so on. So I wondered whether you had th conversations about how to innovate and to perhaps turn this classical theater into something else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. we did. We had um, discussed ways of coming up with a text that uh, departed from the the norm where you have, you know, acts and scenes and so on in a play. But also in terms of the message that we were trying to pass on, we wanted to create a sense of circular continuity of history and experiences in, 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 in looking at uh, the people's, you know, uh, individual memories as well as collective memory and to um, this was this, this allowed us to um, link those um, much better than if you had demarcated it in scenes and you know little portions and so on. So it's as if history is flowing onto one another, commenting you know upon one another. It, it helps us to use the flashback technique very very well in going back in history to the history of slavery and moving forward you know to envision what is um, and what is likely to happen under new colonialism and so on. So yes, it was deliberate, and in uh, a lot of origin texts and forms, as you well know, uh, movements are more um, common than, um, you know, actual structures of, of scenes or episodes. And, and so we were, we were also trying to use oricha techniques in a sense of reclaiming that site. Um, and today when uh, at the panel, we will be talking about uh, the deliberate uh, return to the source Amilka Cabra style, it's a challenge to intellectuals to also use forms and expressions of the people in order to create their work. So we were trying to do that. And, and at the panel, you've subtitled it The Politics of Naming. What are you going to talk, tell us in this about naming? Ngoge uh, uh, is going to start off and he's going to lay out theoretically the, the nature of uh, domination, colonialism, conquest, and the way the notion of discovering, you know, um, uh, colonized people and so forth, and how that is used in order to impose names and namings upon them. I believe he's even probably going to draw examples from the recent elections here, uh, where yeah. we had a candidate who was very good at naming others, you know, um, <laughs> there were some little Marco and um, <laughs> what, what was Hillary, crooked Hillary crooked. and so on. So, but, but Ngogi is going to lay out that framework and then I'm going to use it and come back to show how the false namings of the liberation movement and specifically of Kemathi also uh, led to a distorted text that um, gives us a completely different person from the one that um, we discovered, discovered. Um, you know, when we interviewed ordinary people, peasants and workers and so on. So we are trying to rename those sites um, using the stories that we collected from people and readings that we had that counter, you know, that uh, larger narrative. Well, we look forward very much to that that uh, that performance and that <laughs> that, that lecture. Um, and and maybe uh, at some stage, ASA could uh, arrange for the performance of the play *Trial of Dead and Kamathi* uh, at ASA. Uh, I think it would be uh, very appropriate to have more actual performance. But at some stage, you collectively sat down 
all stood up uh, with Ngugi and with uh, members of the public to write down this text. And I was intrigued by how, because writing uh, jointly just as two authors is always complicated, but you also blend in the voices, I, I think, in one stage of an illiterate villager. So could you tell us, reveal to us a little bit about how you actually synthesized the, the, all that oral testimony, all those memories, all those feelings and your own skills in, into this play on paper? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, indeed. Um, as you know, um, Goge has always been um, very interested in orator, oral traditions and so on. And as Gikandi pointed out in um, uh, an interview that originally, although I was very passionate about theatre and so forth, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a scholar. Um, of, you know, orator as such. But at the University of Nairobi, and the reason I say this learning process for me has really given me a lot of growth, you know, um, as, as, as I sat in on discussions, you know, um, on orator and the art forms of the people and so on, and the more I learned about them, the more I started committing to are using them in my writing. So if you look, for instance, as Daughter of My People Sing, which was published way back in um, 74 and so forth, you know, there is a clear attempt to use orator forms in the, the poetic um, uh, genre there. And, and so as we talked about this, we agreed that we were going to reclaim that site um, of knowledge and use it as much as possible in, um, in invoking songs and, and or the oracy, oratory power of King Mathi in, the for, in those forest scenes and so on and so forth. Uh, we were going to evoke, um, you know, myths and legends and so on that, you know, had emerged around these stories and so on. So we had general agreement on, you know, what we wanted to do. We brainstormed and agreed on what to include and, and you know, how to approach it and so forth. And then we agreed, you know, um, to go and uh, come up with some, you know, broad um, outline between us and, and then try to merge those together. But as we were doing that, I remember one day I went to Dar es Salaam as an external examiner there and came back and found that Ngogi had woken up one day and just felt so inspired that he had taken our uh, text or rather outlines and so forth and started putting together, you know, a, a play. So I think that this caught on as well and somehow we got working like crazy and within no time, you know, but we would write and then come and really discuss, you know, issues and so on. Like when we were talking about the need to show women and youth as a part of the movement and so on, um, you know, that we would um, you know, try to understand how do we do it and so forth, you know. So it was this merging of um, creativities and ideas and constant discussion and so forth and changing and agreeing to change, you know, as we thought differently following discussions and so on. But it was a very exciting process indeed. Well, on this uh, 40th anniversary of the performance and publication of the trial of Dedan Kimati. I'd like to thank you, Professor Mugo and Professor Gikandi, for sharing your insights. It's been a wonderful conversation for talking with ASA Podcasts and Africa Past and Present.
Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.